twice in one month. It's very rare that I get invited back to any church, but twice in one month, that is an honor. So um, thank you for your support of our, our ministry at the, Na- at, I almost said the Naval Academy, um, but at WVU. And uh, we do start football practice tomorrow. So August is about to be a really busy month for me. And I would appreciate your prayers. Uh, football camp starts tomorrow. Um, every Sunday for the month of August in the afternoon, I'll be able to do a, a chapel service for our guys. It's optional, uh, but hope to have good attendance for that. And then uh, I'll start a coach's Bible study with the football coaches in mid-August. In mid-August, we'll start our FCA all-sports huddle that meets on Monday nights. And uh, so a lot going on. And so thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. It's an honor for me to be here with you. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Matthew 16. Matthew, the first gospel here. We're going to be in Matthew 16 and looking primarily at verses 18 through 20, but I want to read for us this morning verses 13 through 20. I am not wearing a tie today because Kevin told me I didn't have to, so if you're offended, please talk to him after the service. Matthew 16 Verses 13 through 20 for our reading. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Dr. Robert Saucy served as professor of systematic theology at Talbot Theological Seminary in California for many years. He went to be with the Lord in 2015, but he is the author of a book called The Church in God's Program. And in that book, he writes this, Throughout the course of history, God has worked in the world in a variety of ways through individuals, nations, and peoples. The focus of his present work is the church, that which was begun in the scriptures as men and women were called to acknowledge the lordship of Christ, continues today in fulfillment of Christ's promise to build his church. Not only is Christ building his church, but it is the primary instrument through which he ministers in the world. As Christ was sent by the Father, so the church bears the ambassadorial role for its Lord as sent ones with a message of reconciliation to the world. We live in an age where people can now visit a church without ever leaving their living room. They can go online and live stream the service like millions of people are doing today. And unfortunately, millions continue to do so since COVID hit in March of 2020. They can look at a church's website. They can read through the doctrinal statement, investigate the leadership. 
examine the church's purpose, mission, and values, peruse the, the vision of the church, and determine whether or not it is worth their time to visit. They can find out almost anything they need to know before dropping in on a worship service. When I was pastor in Brownsburg for 12 years, I would ask people, how did you find us? And many people at that time were saying, we found you online. And, and they would say, and we listened to your sermons before we came. And I was astounded that they still came after listening to my sermons. But it's amazing how you can learn so much about a church just by going to a website. Christ has much to say about his church, the church that he purchased with his own body and blood. The doctrine of the church is found in the word of God. And there we can find out what the church is and what the church should be doing, who should be leading the church, and what is the responsibility of its members. We can do all of this without ever walking into a church building. So what is the church And who makes up the church? What is the church to be doing? What is my responsibility to the church? And we see that each of these questions can be answered through a thorough and careful study of the Word of God. So today I want to give you seven characteristics of the church that Christ loves and builds. Seven characteristics of the church that Christ loves and builds and builds. Number one, Christ defines his church. Christ defines his church. Verse 18 here, we see the very first mention of the word church in the New Testament. Many of you know this is the Greek word ekklesia, and and here we see that Jesus is the one who came up with the concept of the New Testament church. It was his idea. Christ ordained the New Testament church. You think about this word church, ecclesia, the definition is assembly or congregation or the word church itself. It means the called out ones. It's a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public assembly. That is what the church is, my friends. Those who have been called out of the world, called unto Christ to be set apart as his special people for his own plan and purpose. The world has since tried to define what the church is, what the church should be, what the church should be doing, what the church should look like. And I don't know if you've noticed, but that does not always correlate with the Lord's definition of the church. Too often, the church looks like the world. But according to Jesus, the one who said, I will build my church, The church is to be a gathering or an assembly of those who have been called out of the world. The church should be radically different from the world in which we live. When we walk into the church, it should not be the same as the world that we have experienced daily from Monday through Saturday. The church should be different. The world is hostile to Jesus Christ. The world is antagonistic to those who would identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church is to be made up of those who have been delivered from the world and all of its pleasures. The church should be filled with those who have turned their back on the world. The church should be composed with people who do not love the world, but instead love Christ and love his word. Amen? 
That is what the church is, according to Christ, the one who defined the church. And we need to be reminded that he came up with the idea of the New Testament church, and so we must look to him as to what the church should be, what it should look like, and what it should be doing. Number two, we see that Christ defines his church. Christ defines his church. In verse 18, he says, I will build my church. This is a possessive pronoun, little English lesson, where we see that the church belongs to Christ. It was his idea. It is his concept. It belongs to him. So should we not look to him to see what the church should look like? We have many people today, pastors and church planters, church growth experts, designing and constructing churches as to what they believe the church should look like. And in the process, they have not consulted the great architect himself. To me, that is dumbfounding. No one knows more about the church than Jesus himself. He has defined the church and he has designed the church. Why in the world would anyone want to leave him out when constructing a church? He has given us a blueprint. It is found in his inerrant word, but many have chosen to disregard it and build the church in the way that they see fit. Mark Dever wrote a book called The Deliberate Church, and he says this, it would be patently stupid to start construction on a building without first knowing what kind of building we planned to construct. An apartment complex is different from an office complex, which is different still from a restaurant. They all have different blueprints, different kinds of rooms, different materials, uses, and shapes. So the process of building will be different depending on what kind of structure we're planning to build. The same goes for building a church. A church is not a Fortune 500 company. It's not simply another nonprofit organization, nor is it a social club. In fact, a healthy church is unlike any organization that man has ever devised because man did not devise it. The church is more than just an organization. It is an organization. There is structure to the church. God has given us those commandments and what a church should look like, leadership. But it is a living organism. It is full of those who were once dead in their trespasses and sins, but who have now been made alive by Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Man did not come up with the idea for the church. The concept and the design comes from Christ himself. And so if we want to know what the church should look like, we should first consult with the divine architect of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who says here, I will build my church. Jesus is saying here, the church belongs to me and this is what it should look like. I love this scene here in Caesarea Philippi. I got to go there with an Israel trip just a couple years ago. And Jesus here asks his disciples while they were alone, while they were secluded from the crowds that had been pressing on them, and says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, always willing to answer, answers for the twelve by saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He got that one right, didn't he? And Jesus says to Peter, you are right 
And you didn't come up with this on your own. This came from the Father himself. But on this confession, Peter, on this fact that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God, God incarnate, I will build my church. So the church begins with Christ and who he is, that he is the Messiah. He is God. Ephesians 2, 19 to 21. So then, Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul here says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, those who taught, those who proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God those who gave their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who were martyred for defending the claims that Jesus made. There is design to the church. There is structure, and it comes from Christ himself, and it is found in his word. Christ has given instruction for those who would be in authority in his church, for pastors, elders, shepherds. There are qualifications Not anyone can lead in Christ's church. We don't have a sign-up sheet in the back for those who would want to be an elder. They must be tested and examined. Paul, an apostle who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us those qualifications for pastors, for overseers in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And those pastors are to shepherd the flock of God. They are to preach Christ in season and out of season. They are to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, proclaiming the fact that Christ is the head of the church. They are to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to their charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So there are clear instructions in God's word for God's shepherds, who they should be, what they should be doing, and how they should do it. And there is also clear instruction for us, for the people of God, those who make up the church and those who are members of the body of Christ. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, And have charge over you and the Lord and give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. There is clear instruction for the church, what the church should be doing. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, saying, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the household of God. 
It is the dwelling place of the living God. The church is the pillar and the support of the truth. And the church should be holding up the word of God. So when we come together, we are first to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. The church is built upon him alone, and he is worthy of our adoration and praise. Second, we are to equip the saints. Paul says in, four, in Ephesians four eleven and 12, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then thirdly, we are to evangelize the lost. I am aware of the reality that there are most likely unbelievers that walk into this church and to most churches every Sunday And when they come into this place, they should hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how they can be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life with Jesus. But our services should not be designed for unbelievers. The church was never intended to be for unbelievers. Christ has defined his his church as an assembly or a congregation of called out ones. Those who have been called out of the world, out of their sins and unto Christ and called to holiness and to righteousness. The church should not be going door to door to the homes of unbelievers, to those who hate Jesus and are in rebellion against God and are hostile to him, asking them, what do you want in a church? What do you think the church should look like? And then cater to their desires and wishes. I think there are two reasons why unbelievers should not be consulted in what they want in a church. Number one, they don't know what the church should look like. They are unregenerate. They are unsaved. And they do not know his word. Secondly, because the church does not belong to them. The church belongs to Christ. And so I think as As Americans, as Christians, we need to return to God's blueprint for the church, the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, God-breathed, unchanging, timeless, relevant word of God. What does he say about his church? What should it look like? What should the church be doing and what should it not be doing? The church belongs to Christ. He founded it. He defined it. He designed it. And I think it's good, enough, good again to just remind us all that the church does not belong to us. We are his body. We belong to his church. But the construction and the design of the church is not up to us. It is up to Christ and to his word. Many times we as the people of God forget what the church is all about. We forget that church is not really about us. We forget that we are not the head of the church but that Christ is the head of the church. We forget that church is not really about what I get out of it, but rather how I'm to use the gifts that God has given me to edify and encourage the body of Christ. How often do we get in the car on a Sunday morning with the mindset of what is the church going to do for me today? What good word does the pastor have for me? Instead of 
how can I serve the body of Christ this Lord's Day? And how often do we get back in the car at the conclusion of a Sunday service and return home or go out to lunch and criticize the Sunday school teacher or the pastor, not because it was unbiblical or heretical, not because it was not glorifying to God or faithful to his word, but because it was not what we wanted. It's not what we were looking for. Or perhaps we complain about the music because it wasn't our style or because we had to sing two songs that we weren't familiar with, even though they magnified the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and helped us come into the very presence of God. Friends, sometimes we forget that the church does not belong to us. It belongs to Christ. He paid for his church with his own body and with his own blood. The questions we should be asking are these. Was the Lord Jesus Christ exalted in our worship service? Was the word of God proclaimed? Were believers edified and equipped for the work of service? And was the gospel presented to those who do not know him? Those are the things that please God. And those are the things that define Christ and his church. Mark Dever has written another book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. We had the opportunity when we lived in Annapolis to be members of Capitol Hill Baptist Church for a couple years. This is a great book that I would recommend to you. These are the nine marks uh, according to a man, according to a pastor. These are not inspired, but I believe those marks are very biblical. He lists them as, as these, these nine. Expository preaching, biblical theology, a biblical understanding of the good news or the gospel, a biblical understanding of conversion, a biblical understanding of evangelism, a biblical understanding of church membership, biblical church discipline, promotion of Christian discipleship and growth, and a biblical understanding of leadership. Many of those fly in the face of the, church, of the current church growth movement. But these come from a correct and biblical ecclesiology, a correct understanding of the doctrine of the church derived from the teaching of Christ in his word. If we want to know what the church is and what the church should be doing and who should be leading and what the responsibilities of its members are, we need to look to the one who has defined the church. The one who came up with the concept of the New Testament church. We need to look to the one who has designed the church. The great architect, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The third characteristic of the church that Christ loves and builds. Christ develops his church. Christ develops his church. Again in verse 18 here. I will build my church. Christ is still building his church. It is not yet complete. Paul says that he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastor teachers. For what reason? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You might ask this question, why have we not been yet, why have we not yet been raptured? It's a good question. I ask that question a lot during these days. Why are we still here? Is it because we have to go through the great tribulation period? I sure hope not, just for comfort's sake. And also um, because it really wrecks my end times theology. 
No, I believe Christ's return has not yet occurred and we are still here because Christ is not done building his church. He is currently gathering his elect, those who God chose before the foundation of the world. He is bringing believers together, male and female, slave and free, Jews and Gentiles, black and white, growing them, maturing them, giving them a greater understanding of who God is, who they were before they knew Christ and what Christ has done for them on their behalf. Jesus says here, I will build my church. It's future tense. It's a statement of absolute certainty. It is the divine promise of a divine savior. John MacArthur says, in using the future tense, Jesus was not saying, as some contend, that he had not built his church in the past. The idea is that he would continue to build his church just as he has always done. Jesus was not emphasizing the time of his building, but its certainty. No matter how liberal, fanatical, ritualistic, apathetic, or apostate its outward adherence may be, and no matter how decadent the rest of the world may become, Christ will build his church. Therefore, no matter how oppressive and hopeless their outward circumstances may appear from a human perspective, God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. Many times you will see on the side of a church building a date. Our church building that we were able to purchase in Brownsburg in 2005 had a date on the side of the church, 1987, the the date that that church was completed. Well, there is no date on Christ Church because the building is not yet complete. It has been a long building project. The construction began around 30 AD and the cornerstone was laid, Christ himself being that cornerstone. The foundation was poured and the church was being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The blueprints are finished. Christ knows what the end result will be and what the church will look like. And he even knows when the project will be completed. But for now, the building continues. Christ is developing his church. And you and I, by the amazing grace of a loving and merciful God, are part of his church. We are members of his body. Hallelujah. So Christ defines his church. He designs his church. He develops his church. Number four, he defends his church. Verse 18, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This verse is full of interpretive issues. What did Jesus mean when he said, I say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church? Well, in my careful study and consulting those who've gone before me, I believe what Christ is saying here that upon this confession that Peter makes here that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, upon that confession, Christ would build his church. But now we need to determine what does Jesus mean when he says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Most of your translations may have the word Hades, Uh, If you have the King James Version or the ESV, you have the word hell there instead of Hades. It is the word Hades in the Greek, and it means the world of the dead, death. Hades often, if not always, refers to hell when we see it in the Gospels. 
And so I think it is best to interpret it hell here in Matthew 16. Some interpret this as the realm of the dead, but those who favor that interpretation have difficulty showing in what way the gates of that realm are striving to overpower the church and are failing in their assault. The Lord here is giving a divine promise. Just as he promised to build his church, here he is promising to defend his church. And when Hades is interpreted as indicating hell, that assurance can be readily understood. This is a figure of speech that represents Satan and his legions, as it were, storming out of the gates of hell with the purpose of attacking and destroying the church. But Christ Christ promises Peter and the disciples that this will never occur. And here we have a promise that is often repeated in Scripture that Christ's church will be victorious over the forces of evil. John 16.33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Revelation 17, verse 4, in reference to the beast and the ten kings, it says, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Romans 16, 20, the the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that a great verse? The God of peace will crush Satan. Satan under your feet. And so here we see these divine promises from a divine book and a divine savior. The church will not be overcome. Never. Christ is our defender and he defends the church that he he has designed. He protects the church that he has defined and he preserves the church that he is currently developing and building. Many of the songs that we sing, a lot of the older hymns, remind us of this grand truth. Isaac Watts, our God, O God, our help in ages past, he says, Under the shadow of thy throne, still may we dwell secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Martin Luther, who wrote that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. One Uh, The phrases, Sansa says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. William Hendrickson in his commentary, says that Jesus promised that he would always cause his people to triumph over the devil and his army. This promise is, not, is given not to lukewarm Laodiceans, but to Christian soldiers. And that promise must have prompted the Reverend Sabine Baron Gould of England to write that great hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, where he penned these tremendous words, Crowns and thorns may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against that church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, and that cannot fail. 
You know, Nero tried to destroy the church by killing off all the Christians. And though he put many to death, he was unsuccessful in destroying the church. Hitler attempted to kill all the Jews, many of those who would place their trust in Jesus as Messiah and become members of the body of Christ. And he was unsuccessful in doing so. And Satan, the most powerful creature on the earth, with all of his demons, with all the legions of hell, with all the forces of evil, has been trying for 2,000 years to destroy the church, and he has been and will forever be unsuccessful. Many years ago, I put my son Jonathan, who was probably around three years old at the time, he's now 18, getting ready to go to college, I, I was putting him down for a nap, And he asked me to tell him a story before he went to sleep. I was about to go out and mow the grass, and I told him how one time when I was mowing the yard, I saw a snake. Probably not the best thing to tell him before a nap, but it was still light out. And I I, I told him the story how I had finished mowing the grass, and I was beginning to weed eat. And I was cutting some weeds, and I saw this little snake. And the little snake thought about challenging me, but he saw the weed eater and decided to slip away. Satan is powerful. We know that. He comes to steal and to kill and destroy. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But he is no match for Christ. He is no match for the sinless Savior. God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who cannot lie, has told us through the weapon he has given the church, the sword of the Spirit, the inerrant word of God, that the church will not be overcome by the powers of hell. Beloved, you can count on it. The Lord will protect and preserve his church forever. Praise God. Number five, Christ designates power to his church. Christ designates power to his church. Verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Here we see again that the church belongs to him. He holds the the deed to the church. He holds the keys to death and to life. In Revelation 1, 17 and 18, we read these words. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Revelation 3, 7. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. He has the right and authority to give power to the church. He has the right to determine who should be allowed into heaven and who must be refused entrance into his kingdom. And so he does. The word you here in verse 19 is a singular pronoun. This is spoken to Peter, just as Jesus told Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. He says to Peter, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. But this does not mean that Peter became the head of the church or that he was the chief apostle. It is abundantly clear in the scriptures that Christ is the head of the church. Jesus speaks this to Peter, for it was Peter who made this great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But it is clear when we read the book of Acts that the apostles as a group exercised this right and power. All of them did this on an equal basis. 
Acts 4.33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. There was no boss. There was no superintendent among the apostles. There was not a chief apostle. And Peter was not the first pope among a bunch of cardinals. But as we see throughout the Gospels, including the Gospel of Matthew, the influence of Peter was great. He was the leader of the Twelve. He was the spokesman for the Twelve, sometimes good, sometimes bad. It was Peter that gave the sermon at Pentecost where thousands of people repented and believed. And through the preaching of the word, Peter was opening the doors to the kingdom to some and closing them to others. Jesus gave Peter and his disciples power. He, he transferred his power to them. Before he ascended to heaven, Jesus said in Acts 1.8, But you, you, my apostles, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remote, remotest part of the earth. And with that power, they, as it says in Acts 17.6, turned the world upside down. And the world has never been the same. The church was begun and millions upon millions have been added since. And you and I are part of that great multitude. For by the mercy of Almighty God, the kingdom of heaven has been opened to you and to me by his grace and for his glory. Number six, Christ delegates authority to his church. Christ delegates authority to his church. Here again in verse 19, he says, And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You're familiar with the Great Commission. Before Jesus ascends back to heaven and the Father, he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gave the disciples power, but he also gave them authority. The authority that he had while he was on the earth and the authority that he presently has as he is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. He tells them here, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. If this verse sounds a bit familiar to you, it's because we see it again later in this gospel in Matthew 18, where Jesus speaks about this in relation to church discipline. Jesus gives a similar statement in the gospel of John, John chapter 20, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any Their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Well, this language is difficult to interpret and understand. And so I just want to encourage you to go see Marshall after the service is over. He'll be glad to tell you what it means, okay? But let me try to give a little explanation because that's going to be a long line, all right? I want you to look closely at the wording here. Jesus says, whatever and not whoever. He is referring to things, in this case, referring to beliefs and to actions. 
Therefore, if a person continued to do so or do or believe what was forbidden, if he refused to repent, he would be disciplined. He would be bound. If, however, the person repented from his evil way, he would be forgiven and would be loosed and that ban would be lifted. Jesus addresses Peter here, the leader, the representative of the twelve, and tells them, tells him, whatever you bind or forbid on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose or permit on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He told Peter and the twelve, and by extension all other believers, that they had the astounding authority to declare what is divinely forbidden or permitted on earth. This is really incredible to think about. Jesus gives assurance that whatever Peter, representing the 12 here in Matthew 16, or the 12 as they are addressed in John 20, and ultimately whatever the church as addressed in Matthew 18, whatever they bind on earth shall be definitely and, and shall definitely remain bound in heaven, and whatever Peter and the disciples and the church loose on earth shall be and definitely remain loosed in heaven. Maybe I've confused you even more. So let me give you an example of how we can better understand this. The early church did not come up with the New Testament canon. It was not Marcion or Irenaeus or Origen or even Athanasius who came up with the 66 books of the Bible. God in heaven determined the canon of Scripture. God himself determined that our Bible would be composed of 39 books of the Old Testament and 27 books in the New. The early church simply recognized or affirmed what had already been determined by God in heaven. And so if someone is in sin and an individual goes to that person and they have refused to repent... And so he does what he is told to do, and he takes one or two others with him, and that person still refuses to repent. And so he takes it to the church, and the church now calls him to repentance, and he still fails to repent, and is now removed or excommunicated from the church. The church is determining that that person is bound in their sin, and therefore affirming what has already been determined in heaven. Again, we do this on the basis of God's inerrant and authoritative word and on his word alone. This is not based on church tradition, not on man's opinion of what is right and wrong, and we must be careful to do this. Look at verse 20. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So Jesus here goes from directly speaking to Peter to speaking to all of the twelve, warning them not to tell what the Father has just revealed to Peter. Not to tell others that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the expected one. Can you imagine having your mind and your eyes opened to this incredible fact, the true identity of Jesus, that he was indeed the Messiah? That he was God, that this was God in their midst, only to be told that you can't tell anyone. It's almost unfathomable to think about. It would be like the leper who came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you were willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing, be cleansed. 
and immediately his leprosy disappeared. But then Jesus tells him, see that you tell no one. The guy had to be thinking, are you serious, Jesus? How's this going to work? I'm not going back to the leper colony. How do I just show up at home and go, I'm good. I can live here again. The disciples must have had a similar reaction here. How can we not tell others this great news that you are the Christ? You are the living God that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. That is too good of news to keep to yourself. But they would have to keep it to themselves at least for a time. They were secluded in Caesarea Philippi, several miles from their homes and from their families. Why would Jesus say such a thing? I believe there are two reasons for his instruction here. Number one, we know it was not yet Jesus' time. We read in verse 21, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus and the disciples would return to Jerusalem one more time, but not yet. For when they did, he would be betrayed and delivered up and crucified. It was not yet his time. It was not yet the Father's time for him to go to the cross. His time was coming, but not yet. Secondly, I think he tells them to be silent because he knew they would misunderstand the term Messiah or Christ. In John 6.15, it says, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Spreading the word that Jesus was the Christ might have fanned the flames of enthusiasm about him as a potential deliverer from the Roman oppression that the Jews were now facing. Most Jews, including the disciples, We're expecting the Messiah to come as a conquering king, as a military and political leader to set them free from Rome, and not as a savior to set them free from their sin. And so therefore he tells his disciples to remain silent about what they have just heard from the lips of the Son of God. But that silence would be temporary. After Christ's ascension back to heaven, the twelve were confronted by the rulers and the elders and the scribes in Jerusalem, and they were commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, to which Peter and John replied, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. That should be true of each of us today. We should not be able to be contained or restrained from telling what the Lord has done for us. Amen. There's a seventh characteristic of the church that Christ loves and builds. Christ dies for his church. I had to sneak ahead to verse 21, but I had to have seven points instead of six because seven is the perfect number and the number of completion. Christ loves his church and he loves the church so much that he is willing to die for the church. Again, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to, to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. 
Jesus knew this was coming. He predicted his own crucifixion. And he still went to the cross because he loves his church. He loves his people more than he loved his own life. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, loved the church so much that includes you and me and all who place faith in him and him alone. Jesus loved the church so much that he allowed himself to be betrayed, to be arrested, to be crucified. He carried his own cross and placed himself on that cross voluntarily so that you and I might be forgiven of our sin, that we might have everlasting life. Can I give you an eighth characteristic? This is a bonus. Eighth characteristic of the church that Christ loves and builds. This is not official because we don't want to ruin the seven perfect characteristics. This one's free. It's only available if you were here this morning, okay? Um, It will not be on the website later today or that's going to be removed. No pressure for my guy that's doing that. But Christ delights in his church. He delights in his people. He delights in his church. He delights in the organization and the living organism that he himself ordained and established. Friends, he delights in you. He delights in me. Not because of anything that he sees in us. Not because of anything that we had in our own but because we were chosen and marked out from the beginning and because we are now covered in the righteousness of Christ. A man named Samuel John Stone wrote a great hymn many years ago called The Church's One Foundation, and that sums this all up. He writes this, The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great passage of scripture and this great reminder that, Lord, the church belongs to you. And Lord, we see some amazing things in just these three or four verses on how you have established the church and you are the great architect of the church. You're developing it, you're defending it. And the church is not yet complete. Lord, you continue to build and and gather your elect from the four corners of the world. And we're thankful, Lord, that you are still in the process of bringing your people to yourself. Lord, we have loved ones, we have friends, we have family members that are not yet in Christ. And Lord, we, we are pleading for them that you would save them. And Lord, we know that your return will not come and your, your building of this church will not be finished until you gather all of your elect to yourself. Lord, we thank you and praise you today that you have counted us, you have included us in this living organism known as the church. We are the called out ones. You called us out of the world unto yourself. Lord, if you had never called, we would have never come to you. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were in rebellion against you. We were dead and you made us alive. By grace, we have been saved. And Lord, you have saved us. You have brought us into this church. Help us to be a grateful people. May we always know that the church's one foundation is indeed Jesus Christ. We pray this 
in your holy name. Amen.